Okay, let's start. The topic for tonight is Israel Beer. I don't mean Gold Star. The man, Israel Beer. And this is the first time we're going to have a character who is absolutely a villain and is not a question of whether he's a hero or a villain. Okay, yeah, you got it. All right. Now, I, I preface my remarks by saying that what I'm about to tell you did not necessarily happen in the real world. But it was something that was believed to have happened because someone said so. Israel Beer was born as George Beer on October 9, 1912 in Vienna to middle-class assimilated Jewish parents. After his unremarkable upbringing, he joined the Austrian Social Democratic Party and he fought with the Schutzbund, which was the military wing of the Austrian Social Democrats, in the streets of Vienna on the barricades, in the street battles against the Austro-Fascists in February of 1934, in which the Social Democrats lost and the Austrian Fascists took over. He also fought on the left side in the Spanish Civil War in 1936 against the Republicans. In the mid-30s, he attended the University of Vienna and earned a doctorate in modern literature. He also attended the Austrian Military Academy and was inducted into the Austrian military, rising to the rank of a colonel and even commanding a brigade. In 1938, this George Beer had an ideological conversion. He read the biography of Theodor Herzl written by Alex Bain and became a Zionist. Despite having limited contact with his Jewish heritage, he made Aliyah to Palestine in 1938. Okay. Comes to Eretz Yisrael and is a research student at the Hebrew University. Joins the Haganah and impresses people with his knowledge of military strategy and military history, and begins to write academic articles on the subject of military affairs, with a tremendous and prodigious memory of the details of many, many battles. Who were the participants, the kind of weaponry involved, the strategy involved. And this really impresses the leadership of the Haganah, who appoint him in 1942 to be a member of the Standing Committee of the Haganah and a, a leadership position in operations and planning. He becomes very close with the leadership of the left side of the Haganah, those who would become affiliated with the Mapam party, the Mifleget Pauli Muchadot. In particular, he is friendly with Yitzchak Sadeh, the leader of the Palmach, and Yigal Alon and Yisrael Galili. These are big names in the history of the Yishuv and the early history of the Tzvagan al-Yisrael, the IDF. But there were some detractors. Israel Beer was despised by Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan was impressed, as was everyone else, with Israel Beer's theoretical knowledge of military affairs, but 
in the practical realm, he doubted that Israel Beer knew how to handle a rifle. And if Israel Beer didn't know how to handle a rifle, how could he have been a colonel in the Austrian army? Something's not right there. Something's definitely not right. Another one who was suspicious of him was Eitan Avishar. Who was Eitan Avishar? You never heard of him. Was not a high-ranking IDF uh, figure, but in the 1940s was an important person in the Haganah. And his personal history is that he grew up in Austria and his birth name was Zygmunt Adler von Friedman. (laughs) Zygmunt Adler von Friedman, who upon making Aliyah in 1938, the same year as Israel Beer, became Eitan Avishar. Pretty different name. But Eitan Avishar had one claim to fame. He was one of only two Jews in the history of modern Austria to have gone to the Austrian Military Academy. And he knew who the other one was. And it was in Israel Beer. So, something's not right here. The story is not entirely checking out. Okay. But, nonetheless, he was able to convince people, Israel Beer was, that uh, he was a useful asset for the Yishuv. And he rises to the rank of an assistant to the deputy chief of staff at the, at the planning level. During the War of Independence, he plays an important role in planning various uh, military operations. But then when the war is over in 1949, his career stalls. And he wants out of the military. He had wanted to be appointed Deputy Chief of Staff, a very, very high-ranking position. But it wasn't granted to him. Why not? If he was so well-liked by many people, including the top-ranking figures like Sadeg, Alili, and Alon, why did he not get the promotion he was looking for? Very simply put, Israel at that time was not a democracy. Israel was a country run by one party, the Mapai, Mifleget Poale Eretz Yisrael. And that party was dominated by David Ben-Gurion. And if you remember when we discussed uh, Menachem Begin... I mentioned that Ben-Gurion had a policy when it came to establishing the government. He wanted a government run by the Mapai, but of course you have to have a coalition because no party has 61 seats in the Knesset. So all the Jewish Zionist parties are welcome, except for the revisionists and the Kamis. Mapam, was a Marxist party and was excluded by Ben-Gurion, from the government. But the government is just one aspect of the state. The army is another aspect. And the the civilian bureaucracy is another. So what's going on here? If you're not from the right political party, you're not getting a job. If you're not from the right political party, you're not rising from the ranks of the military. There was a purge of officers who were from Mapam or too far to the right. Okay? So that's why Israel Beard didn't go any further. What does he do now? He requests to be discharged. And that happens in 1950. What does he do? He goes into politics. He's a member of the Mapam Party. He had been since 1944. 
and he becomes the leader of the security department of the Mapam party. I ask you a question. Why does a political party need a security department? Okay, so the answer to that is that when you're not dealing with uh, a very developed parliamentary democracy, but rather a new state whose institutions are still in formation, and one in which the governing party has deep suspicions of others, so each party has a security apparatus to do a few things. Number one, to prevent the leakage of secrets. Number two, to prevent the assassination of your your party leadership. And number three, to develop uh, uh, figures in the realm of security who might be able to take official positions if your party ever won. So for all those reasons, parties had the security apparatus. He's the head of the MAPAM. He's writing articles in the MAPAM daily newspaper, um, and is achieving some renown in wider society as an expert in military affairs. What happens next? In 1953, the Mapam Party uh, had a problem on its hands. The relationship between pro-Soviet Israeli Jews and the Soviet Union was compromised by the doctor's plot and by the Prague trials, in which it was basically impossible for a fair-minded Jew and fair-minded person in general to still maintain the belief that the Soviet Union was a reasonable country that had uh, an enlightened and fair view of world Jewry and the state of Israel. But that doesn't stop irrational people from still maintaining that viewpoint. So... What does a, a, a Marxist party like Mapam do? It splits in half. I mean, the party continues to exist and um, still is on the books for the next two election cycles, but there's a, a split between the left faction, led by Moshe Sne, and a rightist faction, but remember, it's a rightist faction of a far-left party, which becomes Achduta Avoda, that eventually joins the Labour Party. Okay. So, the left faction, led by Moshe Sne, maintains its pro-Soviet orientation. Israel Beer joins with Moshe Sne in the left faction, the Siata Small, which is, in, you know, which is totally fitting with his ideological orientation up until that point. There's no surprise there. I mean, Israel Beer wrote uh, very strongly leftist articles with relation to the Cold War, suggesting an Israeli alliance with the Soviet bloc, and he even favored the North Koreans in the Korean War. That's saying something, yeah. But this is 1953? Yes, then? yes, yeah. So this is Stalin, this is the end of Stalin, beginning of Khrushchev in 1953? Correct, Stalin dies on March 5th of 1953. Yeah. Right, so, even so, there will be pro-Soviet? Oh, sure, when Stalin died, there was Hebrew newspapers in Israel lamenting the passing of the leader of progressivism in the world. <coughs> Just like with Fidel last week. Okay. And they knew about three million people. Yeah, yeah. With all the Averis, they said he was still a good Lador. So, now, Israel Beer was critical of David Ben-Gurion for having disbanded the Palmach uh, in the course of the uh, Milchemat Atzmut, the Independence War. And in a, a volume... Uh, produced by the Mapam, dedicated to the history of the war, Beer authored this article, 
which was you know viciously criticizing Ben Gurion, and wisely Yigal Alon and Yisrael Galili suppressed the article and, and excised it from the book, not wanting to offend Ben Gurion uh, too greatly, because after all, these men all had political aspirations. Uh, Alon would go on to become the foreign minister. Galili would have a ministerial career. Uh, in eventually in alignment with the Labour Party. So they're not looking to rock the boat too much, whereas Beer is really a Fabrenta leftist. Okay. With that said, he surprises people in 1954. In 1954, instead of going along with the left faction and joining the Miflegat Communist Israelit, Maki, the Israeli Communist Party, Beer joins the Mapai, Ben-Gurion's party, after a career that had lasted the previous decade in which he was an avowed leftist and pro, uh, pro-Soviet orientation, a real Marxist ideologue. Yes, he was a military affairs expert, but politically speaking, he had this, uh, this viewpoint, which was very much at odds with Ben-Gurion, and Mapai, by 1954, was firmly in the Western camp in the Cold War, cultivating a relationship with the United States. So, why does he do this? People are suspicious. The one man who is most suspicious of them all, aside from Moshe Dayan, who, who, who said when he once saw Israel Beard at General Staff Headquarters, he says, what's the spy doing here? Jokingly, except it turned out he was right. Now, the one man who is even more suspicious than, than Moshe Dayan was Isser Harel. Isser Harel was, at that time, the head of both the Shin Bet, the Shabak, and the Mossad. Um, and he had a hunch that Beer's life story was a fraud, and that something wasn't right here. But Harel believed, at least at that time, and maybe even according to the conclusions that he reached after the whole episode was over, that Beer was a, a Jew who made Aliyah, who served his, his, his country, uh, pre, the pre-state Israel and then post-1948 Israel, but he was a far leftist who couldn't be trusted and was a security threat. Not that he was working for another country, that he was an agent of a foreign government, at least not yet, but he was inherently dangerous because you can't have that far left uh, um, an opinion and hold a prominent position within the defense establishment or have access to uh, state secrets. That like many other far leftists of the Mapam, the Maki, etc., they cannot be allowed near the, uh, the secrets of the kingdom. And what's the concern? That the defense minister has an overly positive impression of Israel Beer. Well, who's the defense minister? David Ben-Gurion. All right, so the issue here is not David Ben-Gurion as the prime minister, but as the defense minister, who, who has say over all matters of the army and access to all the secrets. Well, there was a time from 1953 through 1955, when Ben-Gurion is, in partly, is partly out of power. Uh, he took a little vacation. You could call it a retirement, but like Michael Jordan in 1993, it was just a vacation. All right. He went to stay Boker, the Negev, and was out of politics for about a year and a half, from 53 to early 55. He was not the prime minister. He was not the defense minister. The defense minister was Pinchas Lavon, and we know how that worked out. Not well for the state of Israel. Moshe Sharet was the Prime Minister, and Moshe Sharet was not the, uh, the tough guy that Ben-Gurion was. He was uh, the diplomat, 
the soft-spoken intellectual. But the soft-spoken intellectual could be bamboozled by Israel Beer. And Sharet liked Israel Beer. He said he combines um, military expertise with good writing. That he liked the, the, the writing skills of Beer, which admittedly was excellent. I mean, the, the man wrote for Aulam Mazay, wrote for Davari, wrote for Arts, wrote for Jerusalem Post, and he wrote several books, including one that was published after his death. Um, he was a very smart man, and Charette was impressed by that, and that gave him access to more and more information. Beer would hang around General Staff Headquarters, absorbing uh, information by eavesdropping, and once Ben-Gurion was back in the defense ministry and was seen as having a cozy relationship with Israel Beer, that maybe Israel Beer was his close confidant, so officers who were trying to um, improve their standing in the military, to raise their level of prestige, advance their careers, wanted to get the ear of Ben-Gurion. How do you get the ear of Ben-Gurion? Through Israel Beer, who has the ear of Ben-Gurion. And that meant even more secrets and more personal information about high-ranking officials is available to this guy. Who is this guy? Well, for the most part, everyone thinks he's kosher, except for Israel Harel and Moshe Dayan. It's amazing how parallel it is. To Eli Kohn. So uh, people are able to create an identity for themselves that is based upon the Luft. Nothing. Where did you come from? I'm sorry. So uh, we d- I can't tell you that. At the end, of t- we don't know. At the end, we'll discuss some speculation as to what the truth might be, but we don't know. Israel Beer was born in Vienna, but who's Israel Beer? He never existed. Okay, so in 1955, he is hired by the Defense Ministry as a civilian contractor to write the official history of the War of Independence. That's a, a big kavod, all right? We are uh, uh, the people of the book, the Am HaSefer, right? We have an obligation to study history, so you're doing a big mitzvah tonight. And he's going to write the official history of the War of Independence. So aside from the fact that it's an honor of itself, it also means that to prepare that work, he's going to have further access to, to very classified information, including the Ben-Gurion diaries, which were the most secretive of them all. And eventually, when he gets arrested, the claim is that he, he absconded with some of those diaries and they were lost forever. Um, so, that's his job. He gets an office, he gets a secretary, he, he, he's ensconced at the Kiryat, at the Defense Ministry headquarters. In 1959, his career advances even further. He is appointed by Tel Aviv University as the, the chair of the Department of Military History. All right. So, really, he's getting plumb positions uh, and he's very respected. Did he have knowledge? Okay, so he, he, he might have had some knowledge, and the Soviets were, were certainly interested in that knowledge. And when we get to 1961, that's going to be a major point. In the mid-50s, Harel decides he has to investigate the situation further. Some surveillance of Israel Beer is necessary by the Shin Bet, um, and he has a sit-down meeting with Beer in 1955 to sound him out. What are, what are his real opinions on the various subjects? There was no basis to arrest the man. Uh, he hadn't committed any crimes as far as anybody knew. But Harel wanted to have as much direct knowledge as he could of this guy. In 1956, there's another sit-down meeting shortly before the war against Egypt, Mibsa Kadesh, Operation Sinai. Why does the, this meeting take place on October 23rd? So... 
the superficial level, Harel said to Beer that, you know, I'm interested in knowing about Soviet penetration in the Middle East, and you seem to be an expert on such things. What's your take on how, how involved are the Russians and, Rus- and Soviet satellite countries in interfering in the affairs of the uh, Mizrach HaTichon, the, the Middle East? But while that was the, 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 at the superficial level what the conversation was about, Harel's real intention was to figure out what Beer's personal inclinations are. Where do his loyalties lie? Is he a loyal Israeli, patriotic, even if he holds pretty far-left views, or is he some kind of traitor? Okay. One last major discussion will take place in 1960, at which time um, Harel tells Beer to stay away from Soviet um, embassy officials in the state of Israel and stay out of Western European countries and stop presenting yourself as something that you're not. Now, what was he doing? How was he misrepresenting his position? So in 57, 58, and 59, Israel Beer made several trips to Western Europe. And he would fool his own countrymen. He would go to the various embassies in London, in Paris, and in Bonn, claiming to be on an official defense ministry uh, mission to secure some kind of uh, relationship between the state of Israel and that host country. But in reality, he was not on any mission. He was on his own uh, tour of Europe, trying to accomplish whatever he could for himself, or for whoever his handlers were. At this point, we don't know. So he was getting cooperation from from Israeli military attaches in these various embassies. And that was giving him access to dignitaries in those countries, including in West Germany, where he met with Defense Minister Franz Josef Strauss. The big meeting that he really wanted most of all was with the head of the BND, the intelligence services of, the, of West Germany, who was Reinhard Galen. Now, Reinhard Galen was the Wehrmacht's chief of intelligence during World War II on the Eastern Front. So that alone tells you that he's no tzaddik. Uh, if he's the leading figure in Nazi intelligence during the war on the Eastern Front, he must have done a lot of bad things. But after the war, Galen was able to maintain his clandestine services as a private like, uh, operator, uh, like, like the A-Team. You know, he wasn't working for any government. He was working for himself, the Galen Organization, which eventually was funded by the CIA, or the OSS, which became the CIA, and over time morphed into the official def- uh, intelligence services of West Germany. It was believed throughout the late 50s that from a Soviet perspective the one man they most, they most wanted to turn to flip in their favor was Reinhard Galen. If they could get the West German intelligence services to flip in favor of the Soviets that could facilitate maybe the capture of West Berlin or maybe even the invasion of West Germany who knows what. The fact that an Israeli defense ministry civilian employee was so desperately interested in cultivating a relationship with the spy master of West Germany, led the higher-ups in Israel, notably Yisrael Harel, to think that must be that Israel Beer is a Soviet operative. And that's why he's trying to get to, to Reinhard Galen, not in his capacity as an Israeli citizen. Okay. So, he tells him he can't meet with Galen. Not allowed. Asur. What happens? He goes anyway and meets with him. Where is this Sir Harel? How come he can't keep tabs on, 
on Israel Beer's activities and stop him from getting on the plane and going to, to Germany? Answer, for much of the first half of 1960, Isser Harel was busy. Where? South Argentina. He spent January through May in Argentina laying the groundwork for the capture of Adolf Eichmann and so he couldn't follow his other suspicious targets. He's busy trying to get Abba Iben on a plane so they can get Eichmann out. A complicated story. Alright. So Beer has done things he's not supposed to do. And the suspicions are growing. But... David Ben-Gurion doesn't uh, accept the criticisms of Beer that are being presented to him by Isser Harel. Normally, Ben-Gurion was uh, you know, a very, a very receptive to Harel's hunches, but in this case, not. Why? Who knows? For whatever reason, he had a respect for Israel Beer, his talents, and he didn't think he was a, as a traitor. Okay, but things are getting even more suspicious. In 1957... Beer had meetings with uh, a Soviet, a, a Russian journalist. And that journalist was actually really an intelligence officer working out of the, the, the Russian embassy in Israel. And he told the Shin Bet about his meetings. It wasn't a secret. And Beer was told, stay away from these people, you know, even if they claim they're a journalist and you want to present Israel's side of the story in the Russian media, uh, and the, the argument from Beer's perspective was if the Russian media this, or the Soviet bloc media is so hostile to Israel and is always taking the Arab side, at least I could give them our version of the story. Maybe it's beneficial to the state if I interact with them. I'm not going not to reveal any secrets. I'm just going to give them our perspective on military affairs. He was told, no, no, cut it out. But things got even more intense at diplomatic parties at the various embassies of Soviet bloc countries in Israel. Israel beer would be periodically invited and schmooze with them and meet with them in a semi-public setting. But these meetings in a semi-public setting eventually led to clandestine meetings in a very private setting. Most significantly, at the Russian Orthodox Church of Al-Kabir in Israel, which was uh, a, a secret or not-so-secret headquarters of Russian, the Russian spy service, that on the ground in, in Medinat Israel they had plenty of operatives and would grab people and interrogate them in the Russian Orthodox Church, knowing that it was safe from uh, Israeli police or Israeli secret service uh, or even you know, bugging uh, by uh, te- technological intervention, it was a place where they could get away with their activities. Do you know where this church was located? Is that the one near the uh, hotel near uh, the Hechel Shlomo? It's, uh, it's in the Rachavia neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Is that with that prison? No, no. So, who is the the last figure within the Russian service to get Israel Beer ultimately caught. Well, his name was Vladimir Sokolov. He was a mid-level ranking official at the Russian embassy, and he strikes up a relationship with Beer. They meet several times in January of 1961, and they meet again at a cafe late at night on March 28th of 61. At this point, 
the Mossad is alerted that something is not right. Israel beer has to be watched. Sokolov has to be watched. They meet again on the 30th at, 11, uh, at about 8 p.m. A suitcase is handed by Israel beer to Sokolov. Two cars drive away off to Tel Aviv to the Russian embassy. Then those cars drive out of the embassy compound towards 67 Brandeis Street in North Tel Aviv, which was Israel Beer's apartment, and the briefcase is handed back. So the guy on the ground who sees this happening says, oh, the money just changed hands. But Harel said, no, no money changed hands. Documents changed hands. They were given to the Russians, photographed in the embassy, and given back so as not to arouse any suspicion, because then they could be returned to whatever file they came from, and no one would ever know. So Harel calls Ben-Gurion at one in the morning and says, we're operating against Israel Beard tonight. Doesn't ask for permission, he says, we're operating against him tonight. And Ben-Gurion's response is, do your duty. Which is a nice way of saying, fine, you, you caught him, I was wrong, you were right, let's see what happens, you know, find out the evidence. They catch him red-handed with classified information that he should not have possessed. He's arrested, but no one knows about it yet. The matter is kept secret from March 31st until April 11th. There there is a rumor on the street that a high-level defense ministry employee was arrested. On April 16th, the news finally breaks that it was the Pashan, the military commentator, Israel Beer, who was known to the general public because of his uh, various writings and his uh, high-level positions in uh, academic life and military life. And the, the public is shocked. Israel Beer, the close confidant of David Ben-Gurion, was arrested on charges of spying, of treason? Terrible, terrible. Now, why was there a delay in revealing what happened? So the answer is, and this relates to Eichmann again, the Eichmann trial began on April 11, 1961, and the desire on the part of Ben-Gurion's government, and one of the main purposes of the trial, was to be a very public matter to teach the Israeli people and the world at large about the Shoah and anything that might be done to blunt the force of the, the drama of the opening of the trial had to be prevented. And the, the, the arrest of Israel Beer was big news. So you can't let that break when we're trying to promote other news stories. They delayed any release of information until a week later. Okay. What happens at the trial? Well, first of all, the trial is delayed until January of 62. In the meantime, Beer has to be interrogated. And he tells the same old story, that he was born in 1912, assimilated Jewish family in Vienna, blah, 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 fought with the Schutzbund, fought, fought, fought the Spanish Civil War, doctorate from Vienna, uh, had a conversion to Zionism, came to Israel in 1938. After the... Uh, various interrogators are done trying to extract information from him, it's Isser Harel's turn to, to get in the jail cell. And no, he doesn't punch the guy in the face and beat him up and bloody him. No, no, no. Isser Harel was a really kind of a schlumpy guy. He's not exactly a Krav Maga specialist. He just, he just tells him, you're a liar. And then he explains how he knows that you're a liar. First of all, if you were Jewish, even if you came from an assimilated family... How come you're not circumcised? 
no bris. Even the, the Goyesh Jews of Vienna gave their kids bris. That you don't have one means you ain't Jewish. Next point. We checked with the Schutzbund. You will never remember. Next. We checked with all the people in the Yishuv who fought in the Spanish Civil War. And by the way, there were plenty of them. Because after all, Jews are pretty far to the left politically. And some of them made their way to Palestine. So in Eretz Israel, in, in the state of Israel in 1961, there were probably a few dozen people who fought in the Spanish Civil War. And none of them remember a guy by the name of Israel Beer, George Beer. Furthermore, he couldn't have gone to the Austrian Military Academy because, as Eitan Avishai said, there only were two Jews who ever went and he wasn't one of them. So none of the details of his life story panned out. They were all lies or could not be corroborated anyway. So Harel says, who are you? And Birov refuses to give a direct answer. Just always maintains the same story that was made up long ago. All right. Well, what kind of information did he leak? And to whom did he leak it? Well, it all depends upon who his handlers were and who he was working for. He never admitted to working for the KGB. Never admitted that. What he did admit was that he believed the state of Israel would be better served in an alliance in the Cold War with the Soviet bloc than with the Western powers because he believed firmly that the Soviet bloc would win the Cold War. Not just ideologically that you know, that's where he was, but that they, he thought they would win. You ever hear someone say they thought the Soviet Union would win the Cold War? I've never heard anyone ever say that. I've never heard that. Even from people who were themselves pretty far to the left, I've never heard anyone say that. But that was he claimed. He said, Israel needs to go with the winning team, and the Soviets are going to win. And so he released information, but only about personalities and not sensitive uh, military secrets. He denied revealing sensitive military secrets. Okay, so they had certain top secret uh, documents, but they may not have been on the key points that Israel was concerned about. Most, mo- most worrying was if he had released information about the nuclear plant at Demona, which he probably did, but we don't know. He denied it. Harel thinks that he, d- that he did it. Um, when pressed further, did you reveal uh, information about military installations? So he probably did. But he, he denied that too. What he did concede is that he had toured NATO installations in Europe on his various trips in the 1958 and 59, and that he revealed to his Soviet handlers, or he didn't refer to them as handlers, but he revealed to Russian officials about uh, a base that was built by Solel Bonet on behalf of NATO in Turkey that an Israeli contracting company built a NATO base in Turkey, and he had all the plans and all the blueprints, and that he gave over. But after all, that's not treason, um, it's, not, uh, it's not committing treason against the state of Israel, that's simply harming the interests of NATO. But after all, he thinks Israel should be an enemy of NATO. Okay, that was his line of defense. Well, he goes to trial. It's a closed trial. Of course, these things can't be revealed to the public. Uh, very limited amount of information uh, is ever going to be revealed on, uh, uh, as to what he actually um, handed over to the Russians. But we go to the verdict, guilty. The court in Tel Aviv, guilty. What's the sentence? Ten years in jail. Ten years in jail. Why only ten years? 
Why only 10 years? He wasn't Mahler. Okay, so how old was he? He was... Uh, 1912. He was 50... 50 exactly. Not an issue of age. It's a few factors. Number one, the crime that he was guilty of was not a high-level crime in the sense that they never could pin on him uh, that he materially injured any Israeli citizen or that w- the information that he gave over did specific harm to the state. It was uh, the generic crime of passing off inf- classified information to a foreign, uh, a foreign entity. Furthermore, um, there was the factor that the court accepted, believed, his assertion of ideological purity, that it was not for the sake of personal enrichment, that it was not uh, a matter of desiring to commit treason against one's homeland, but rather that he really believed he was acting in the better interests of the state. Was he paid? Okay. So he was paid, he was paid, but he claimed... He was just uh, getting his expenses uh, covered. Um, Now, was he getting paid more than just his expenses being covered? So this is where the parallel to Ellie Cohn actually uh, comes up again. Sometimes people get sloppy after a long period of being uh, a spy, living a double life. It's not easy uh, on on the, the psychology of a human being to to live that dangerous existence for a long period of time. So, what did he do in 1960 and early 61? He started womanizing. He had uh, many paramours, including Ora Zahavi, who was something of a noted socialite, and she was a married woman. And her husband didn't take kindly to the fact that she was having an affair with Israel Beer. So he beat him up. And Israel Beer came to work at the defense ministry one day with bruises all over his body and a black eye. And he said it was a, it was a car accident. But Ora Zahavi, when the trial uh, was happening, was forced to embarrassingly admit that, yes, she was having an affair with Israel Beer. And she wasn't the only one. There were, there were many women much younger than Beer. Beer was about 50. These were women in their 20s or early 30s. Um, and uh, in terms of attractiveness out of his league, so to speak, that led Israel Beer to further think that, that uh, led Israel Harel to think that Israel Beer was a spy because he was able to attract these women who he had no business uh, cavorting with. Furthermore, relations between Israel Beer and his wife, he was a married man with no children, were souring. He was getting to fights with his wife, so the Shalom Bias was on the rocks. And he was drinking heavily, something that he hadn't been doing earlier in his career. So the womanizing, the drunkenness, the lack of harmony at home were further indicators that this man's life is becoming unwound. And arguably, Sokolov was pressuring Beer to give up more than Beer really wanted to give up and to have meetings that Beer thought would be too dangerous. And so he got caught because he got in too deep. Beer himself would, would, would make this argument that he wanted to have 
benign contacts with Soviet officials or Soviet representatives in the state of Israel, but that his efforts at benign contact with journalists or low-level diplomats turned into him getting in over his head and revealing things that he didn't want to reveal and being blackmailed, etc., etc. So you could interpret that to mean, yeah, that's really what happened. Or you could say, he was a spy all along, and it was a cover story, but life got to him and he started making mistakes. Did he travel out of the country like all the time back to the Yes, but, but did he, right, so the question is, did he go to Russia? And the answer to that is no. He did claim to enter Soviet bloc areas on two occasions, to go to East Berlin and to go to Poland to meet with the Polish defense minister. However, it, is, it was subsequently claimed that, that that was a lie, that he was, he was um, aggrandizing his own importance by saying that he met with high-ranking Polish officials or East German officials when, in fact, he never did. But we do know that he did meet with West German, French, and British officials. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay, so, he, he, he appeals his sentence. And the Supreme Court of Israel, here's the case, in November of 1962. And what is he appealing? That he shouldn't get jail time, because after all, if the lower court in Tel Aviv agreed that his motivation was not sinister, but rather was, you know, pure, ideologically on the fringes, but still pure, then he shouldn't serve jail time. So the high court hears it and decides, you know what? Instead of 10 years, we'll give him 15 years. <laughs> so his appeal, not only did it fail, it got him more jail time. But of course, none of that mattered because he died in prison in 19, on May 1st, May Day, 1966, at the age of 54, or supposedly the age of 54. Was that natural causes. Natural causes. There's, there, there is, to my knowledge, no suspicion that he was poisoned or killed by the Israelis yet. No, it was not the first time. Aaron Cohen, a f- another uh, far-left figure associated with, with Mapam and later Maki, uh, was arrested in 1958 on the suspicion of passing information to Soviet officials. He actually was uh, found not guilty and didn't serve jail time and lived until about 1980 and was a reasonably important figure in far-left politics in Israel. Uh, there were other people less famous than Israel Beer who were suspected of and arrested for activities in relation to the Soviet bloc. But Beer was, Beer's case became famous because of his stature and the fact that he was so close to high-ranking officials. If you were a low-level nobody, it didn't really matter because you didn't have much information to pass along. Which, which brings us to a bigger issue, and that is Harel when all was said and done, after Israel Beard died, Harel came to the conclusion that the Tel Aviv court was right, that Beer was not a Soviet plant from the Stalinist era in the 1930s who was told to go to Palestine and infiltrate the Haganah and the Yishuv and eventually the state of Israel and remain inactive until 20 years later when he's finally activated. 
if, if that's what really happened, that's crazy. To think that a man could go undercover for 20 years. I mean, the world changed tremendously between 1938 and 19, let's say, 56 or 57 when he started interacting with Soviets. I mean, a lot of water under the bridge, notably the Holocaust, World War II, the establishment of the State of Israel, the death of Joseph Stalin. A million and one things happened between 1938 and, and the late 50s. To think that a man was sent by the NKVD under Joe Stalin and did all that he did in the Yishuv and rise through the ranks of the Haganah and the IDF and the uh, political c- culture in Israel only to, in 1957, start sending documents to, back to Russia, it's hard to fathom that that could have really happened. But it could have happened. As, as, as impossible as it is to fathom, it could have happened. But Harel thinks, no, that's not what happened. He believed that Beer, whatever his personal identity really was, Jew or Gentile, we could never know for sure, never know for sure, was he, uh, he was buried in Israel. As far as I know, yes. Um, he, Harel, Harel came to the conclusion that Beer came to Israel like many, many other socialists and Marxists did in the late 30s and participated in the life of the Yishuv, in the Haganah and the IDF with the intention of serving their country to the best of their ability but that their economic and political philosophy led them on a path which coincided with the interests of the Soviet Union and not that which the Mapai believed was in the better interest of the State of Israel. So basically, the guy's motivations were, in his own mind, clean, as, as far as Harel was concerned, except that what he did was damaging to the state. Okay. Others come to a very other conclusion and say, no, 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 he... He, he was uh, intended to be a spy all along, and his, his intentions were malicious, and his actions were very detrimental to, to, to state security, and whatever punishment he got was well-deserved. Within the, within the defense establishment, as I said, some people were suspicious and others were not. He had a very good relationship with Shimon Peres. Why Shimon Peres? Well... Okay, all right. So Shimon Peres, as one of the two main protégés of David Ben-Gurion, together with Moshe Dayan, uh, was a way of getting to the prime minister, the defense minister. Peres himself functions in the late 1950s as the, the deputy defense minister. Earlier than that, he had been de- de- uh, director general of the defense ministry. So having a good relationship with Shimon Peres, who was 11 years younger than Israel Beer, and possibly a little bit impressionable in his earlier years, was a convenient way for a man with, you know, uh, trying to, to pass along state secrets to get to the most sensitive of, of secrets. And it was precisely that relationship with Shimon Peres that led some to think that nuclear secrets were available to him and that nuclear secrets were passed along to the enemy. And it probably happened. Uh, Shimon Peres never discussed what kind of conversations he had with Israel Beer after 1961 because that would be embarrassing. David Ben-Gurion, right after the arrest of Israel Beer, was himself in a very delicate position because everyone was under the impression that he and Beer were very close. So now it's a tremendous embarrassment. Ben-Gurion had to publicly disavow the relationship and say that it was never all that close. Was it, or was he just covering uh, his, you know, himself from criticism? I don't know, I wasn't there. But 
Ben Gurion had to, uh, you know, tap dance around the fact that he really was close to uh, a man who was caught. Okay. Um, was he designated to go after Achman? And if so, was that a fairly high level? So the. the um, no, no. Isser Harel was, was, was the head of the Mossad who was responsible for the operation to capture Eichmann and that involved about a dozen or so agents in Argentina but uh, that just distracted him from keeping tabs on Israel Beer who then went ahead and went to Europe and did whatever he did Okay. after Beer's death um, a book was published posthumously Israel's Security Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Bitachon Yisrael, it's Mohayom Machar. And it was regarded as one of the best ever written books on the topic of the War of Independence and Israel's strategic military goals. Written by a man who was arrested and sentenced to, to 15 years in jail, died in jail. But it goes to show you that despite whatever he might have been accomplishing uh, secretively, at the superficial level, at the, at the surface level, the man was a real smart guy and was a keen analyst of Israeli security needs. It's, it's sometimes difficult to accept the idea that someone who was acting against state interests could also be useful in, in an academic or, or a political way, but he really was. So that's what makes his character so bizarre. Aside from whether he was really a Jew or, or he wasn't, the bottom line is, for 23 years, he worked within the hierarchy of the Israeli, uh, or, or Yishuv and the Israeli establishment, and did tremendous work, wrote dozens and dozens of articles, authored several books, including on Bitachon Yisrael, and it's still studied to this day. Uh, I actually want to buy myself a copy of the, the English uh, translation of it. It's available on Amazon, but I think the price is a little too high. Um, uh, but it, 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 people still read about it. Now, I, I asked some of my Israeli friends and my Israeli cousin, who is a few years older than me, to give a hear of Israel beer. And he said, oh, you know, the name sounds very familiar. Uh, this, is, this is someone who, do, who doesn't study history. He's, he's a, an accountant. Not to disparage accountants, but, <laughs> but I, I, I just wanted to see if someone who grew up in Israel in the 70s and 80s had ever heard of this guy. Because I was sus- suspicious that maybe the Israeli Ministry of Education, which has a habit of, of you know, purging unpleasant aspects of Israeli history from uh, the, the public record and certainly not indoctrinating the youth in knowing about these sorts of things. Did you ever hear of this guy? See, yeah, yeah, I heard of him. I heard of him. He's racking his brain for a minute or two and he finally gives up. And I explained to him who his real beer was. It leads me to believe that for the most part, uh, in the decades to follow, he, his name was, was like Yamak uh, Shemov We don't We don't mention him. The, the literal, you blot out his name because it's an unseemly stain on the record of, uh, number one, the Haganah, number two, Tzal, uh, the Misrat Bitachon, and uh, David Ben-Gurion, you know, the Holy of Holies. So, that's why people don't know about him unless they're uh, something of an avid reader of Israeli history. Ben-Gurion was a big writer. Was there anything about beer in any of his... Mem- he had memoirs and he had super memoirs. Right, so... so um, in his thousand-page uh, autobiography uh, that came out in 1973, that I don't think anyone has ever read cover to cover. I have a copy of it. I have a copy of it, and I've been trying to get through it. It's, I'm about three years into reading it. You have to go a few pages at a time because it's very dense. 
and it's not written in the first person. It's sometimes written in the third person. Um, there is reference to Israel beer, but not much. Mm-hmm. And certainly not uh, admitting or conceding that the guy who got arrested was part of you know, private conversations on sensitive topics. That certainly, David Ben-Gurion went down to his grave in December of 73 not wanting to talk about, not wanting to admit. So where did you get your information? All right, so this is all public knowledge for anyone who wants to, to read about it. Wikipedia. Uh, I mean, so yeah, there happens to be a, a significant Wikipedia article, both in English and in Hebrew, the, he, the Hebrew one being much lengthier, based upon articles written by Eitan Haber and uh, Yossi Melman, who wrote most of the books, the good books about uh, the Mossad and all matters of you know, Israeli secret uh, service uh, life. So, in order to, to know this topic, you have to read uh, books about Mossad's failures, Mossad's successes, and uh, Russian-Israeli relations. But um, much is still unknown. Aside from the fact that we don't know whether he was really a Jew and what his, what his true name was, we also don't know the extent to which the Soviet state really had any direct relationship with him. We know that functionaries on the ground in Israel interacted with him and, and, and took some of the papers that he was willing to give them. But was that filtered all the way to the top? And how, how high did it go? We can't know for sure. Sokolov, Vladimir Sokolov, as soon as he found out that Israel Beer was arrested, what do you think he did? He left the country. He was on the next flight out of the country because uh, he wasn't welcome anymore. So we, we don't know too many details about uh, Beer's relationship with his handlers because we never knew who the true handlers were. We just know who he interacted with on the ground in Israel. Yeah. I mean, the timeline of him being a colonel in the Austrian army right. 1936, 37, 38 Hitler annexed Austria in 1936. Okay, so, that, so that, that, uh, that point troubled me as I'm, as I'm preparing this, this talk. I'm thinking to myself, what if I were in Israel in the 1940s and 50s? Would I have been bamboozled by a guy like Israel Beer? And I'm thinking to myself, Austria, after 1934, was no longer uh, a European-style democracy. It was a fascist state under Dolphus until 1938, when the Anschluss on March 12th led to the annex- it was the annexation by Nazi Germany of, of Austria. So... Would it have been possible for a Jew to serve as a high-ranking officer in the Austrian army when it was already a fascist state? And the answer to that is it's absurd. But if if his name was Beer and he was claiming uh, and he claimed that he was a, a Viennese Jew, it's not like people could conceal their identity so easily. Not having a circumcision isn't the be-all and end-all. All right, there are records. This isn't, you know... Yeah. The Soviet Union fell. had the Verona files opened up. Right. Anything in there about this episode? I don't know. I don't know, but it is something to check out. My guess is that there won't be all that much information available. You know why? Because at at most, it would have to be indirectly connected to beer in the sense that the paperwork would never reveal who the source was. 
at most you would discover that uh, information about the state of Israel that the Soviets otherwise really shouldn't have had was in their files. And then we could speculate, well, how did they get it? Since Beer was the only known, or maybe the only known operative, it would have been, it would have been him. We didn't even know if Beer is his name. Right. Now, the other thing is, there were, um, there were X marks in his files, uh, and some suspected that those marks indicated how much money he was paid, they were, or they were coded messages. He claimed those were uh, his womanizing exploits that indicated how many liaisons he had had. But it's possible that we could uh, correlate whatever was in his, his files with what might be discovered uh, in the Soviet Union, but we don't know for sure. What made Moshe Dayan suspicious of him? His inability to, um, to function at the field level. Uh, he, didn't, he seemed to be out of place, practically speaking. You know, if, if, you're an, if you're a competent soldier, you can dismantle a rifle and put it back together in X number of minutes. And he couldn't do such things. It was all the intellect. It was all in the head. It wasn't uh, from the neck down. So that leads you to believe he's operating in a world of knowledge, of information, but not of real hands-on fighting. Okay. Last question. Yeah. Did he um, pass on very important information? Well, wasn't that that important? That we can't know for sure, but probably very important information. Yeah, yeah. Was his wife interviewed, and did she give information about him? Uh, all I know about the wife is that she denied um, any awareness of his illegal activities. But that's usually what happens in these sorts of cases, because the spouse doesn't want to be implicated and serve jail time. Um, did she know? Did she not know? She was an Israeli Jewess. Presumably, he, she had no intention to, to uh, deceive her country or to commit a crime. Why she married him, who knows? But the point is, she said, I know nothing. I know nothing. Okay, we'll stop here.